Good morning, all. Um, we're working our way through Second Corinthians, and um, at this stage, um, it helps understand that when predators they try to separate weaker prey from their protectors, and this is what's happening in Corinth. Paul is coming under fire. His name is being dragged through the mud, and this is dangerous because if they dismiss him, they will dismiss the gospel that he represents. And Paul knows that if that happens, the eternal welfare of the flock is at risk because the welfare of the flock is directly related to their understanding of the message. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, we'll start there and we'll work our way through the passage. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Might help to understand a little bit of Jewish marriage customs at the time. For a Jew at the time, betrothal engagement was the first stage of marriage. Jewish betrothal was not like our customs with respect to betrothal. It was not entered into lightly, and it was not easily broken. In fact, if you got engaged to somebody, the betrothal could only be canceled by an official bill of divorce. Um, if a betrothed woman had sexual relations with any other man before the actual marriage came, then it was treated as adultery. Uh, the betrothed couple didn't live together until the marriage ceremony. What would happen that the betrothal would be arranged and the husband and the fiance and the father's fiance, they would be involved. They would figure out a dowry. And then what would happen? The man would leave the woman under the care of the father. He would go and begin to prepare the place that they would live, and it took up to a year. Then he would, during that year betrothal period, at the end of it, he would go back, they would have a ceremony, then he would take the wife, and they would then live together at that point. Uh, the responsibility to safeguard the daughter's fidelity until she got married, that fell to the father. And when this whole marriage thing, this is what Jesus was referring to when in John 14, he said these things, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Just like the betrothed husband left to prepare the place for he and his future bride to live together, Jesus said he was going to prepare a place for you. And the image is the same. Jesus becomes betrothed to us as the church. This is the time period in which he is going to prepare a place for us. He'll come back a second time as the husband came back 
to his betrothed. Jesus is going to come back. What he's doing right now is he's preparing a place for you. What Paul is afraid of, that between betrothal and marriage, Christians in Corinth will commit spiritual adultery. And he says in verse 3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. As the serpent deceived Eve, the Corinthians are being led astray from pure and simple devotion to Christ. So we ask the question, how does this occur? How is it that we can be led astray from pure and simple devotion to Christ? As Paul talks about that, he talks about or he he alludes to how the serpent deceived Eve. So how did that occur? Let me just read a a verse from Genesis chapter 3, where it says, when the serpent is talking to Eve, he says this, God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, he says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what the serpent ends up doing with Eve to try to pull her from pure, simple devotion is indicates that the reason God doesn't want you, Eve, to eat the fruit is that you would be like God, knowing good and evil. And that is something that God doesn't want to happen. So what the serpent inferred is that it would be something that Eve would gain by eating the fruit. It's interesting um, that as thoughts about God's goodness waned, as the serpent was able to cause Eve to think, hey, I wonder why he doesn't want me to know good and evil. That when that occurred, when that, her understanding of God's goodness kind of decreased, some other things increased. She saw that the tree was good for food, and the gaining wisdom was something that she would benefit from. Um, And then she ate the fruit. It's interesting, though, what Paul's pointing out, how spiritual seduction occurs. And he did it with respect to convincing her that God knows good and evil, and you'll want to know that as well. You would imagine, then, from this, that Jesus, that God is fluent in the language of good and evil. And there are some verses in the Bible, in Genesis, there's another verse that, well, it says this in Genesis 3, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. From these verses, you would indicate that God is fluent in the language of good and evil. That if you were to be able to think about what God's thinking about or see into God's mind, you would see God being preoccupied with good and evil. Jesus suggests otherwise. When Jesus came, it says in Hebrews that he is the exact representation of God. So what Jesus reveals to be true about God is clear and exact. And this is what Jesus said. We've looked at these at another time. Somebody came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing 
must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus' reaction is interesting. He says, why do you ask me about what's good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. This person said to Jesus, uh, what good thing? And Jesus says, why do you ask me about what's good? Jesus reflects God, and you would think that God's fluent in the language of good and evil. Jesus says, I don't understand what you're thinking about. Jesus didn't think about life with respect to good and evil. He thought about life with respect to what reflects God and what doesn't. There's another time a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And again, Jesus did the same thing. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. It's interesting. You'd think then that God is fluent in the language of good and evil, that Jesus reveals God. But when somebody asks Jesus about good, he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see life as good and evil. Um, it seems then, on this side of the cross, God, Jesus reveals that God is not preoccupied with good and evil. Um, it doesn't make sense then, when we think about God, what it says is things with respect to God, well, what does it say? To those who love him, all things work together for good. To those who are called according to his purpose, says Romans 8.28, Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Why don't you think about that? You know, what we're experiencing now, you can't call it good. There might be some silver linings to the virus that we're experiencing, but it does fall within the parameters of these verses. That's what it indicates. To those who love God, all things work together for good to those who called according to his purpose. And he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? This guy, when I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, there was this, it was back in, uh, <clears throat> yeah, times, olden times. Um, I'd, I'd do this thing with this guy. Um, we'd ask this question and we'd kind of, we'd talk about it. Hey, I got a question for you. Here's a question. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Answer that question. And then this guy said, Mike, I can't, I can't see it. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? It really is a compelling question. Did you think about it? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? It doesn't make sense that God withholds good from us. If he did or could withhold good from us, then he would never would have sent his son in the first place. What we're going through doesn't feel good, and that's fine to admit. But it will fall under the parameter of something that God will cause to work together for good to those who love him and call according to his purposes. Uh, but with these individuals, Paul's concerned about how could they be taken in? How could they be seduced spiritually? Paul gives us a, a sense in verse 5. He says, I indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. 
Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. When Paul talks about the super apostles, he's referring to his rivals in Corinth, those individuals who are trying to pull the attention and the affection of the Corinthians away from him. They boast about themselves as being apostles who are second to none. Um, and when Paul compares himself with them, he admits that as orators, he was not as good as they were. Um, he lacks the polish of a skilled speaker who is very fluent and has compelling arguments. The fact is, Paul didn't really trust flowery speech, and with good reason. Here's what it says in Ezekiel. Listen to this. It's an interesting verse. Ezekiel 33, 32. Indeed, God says to Ezekiel, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. Uh, what God was talking about, they really liked to listen to Ezekiel. He made them feel good. But the people who were listening, they really didn't want to know truth. They wanted to be pleased with how nice somebody sounded. And Paul didn't trust nice speech. And he didn't trust worldly wisdom either. In 1 Corinthians, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It's interesting. There was a song, The Blood Will Never Lose Its Power. I think it was Andre, Andre, Andre Crouch a long time ago. At any rate, um, what Paul indicates, that the cross can lose its power. That's interesting. The, the cross can lose its power. When the message is not the truth, when worldly wisdom is added to increase the impact of the, the message, then the power of the message isn't increased, it's decreased. What Paul seems to indicate, the critical interface is not the influence of the messenger on the will of the hearer. I'm going to say that again. The critical interface is not the influence of the mess of the speaker on the will of the hearer. The critical interface is the influence of the message on the will of the hearer. That's what Paul understood. The truth, as we consider it, it makes its way into our mind. It changes the way we think about God. And as our thoughts about God change slowly, our attitudes toward God, ourselves, and others, they change slowly. As our thoughts and attitudes change, our actions are going to change. Actions require a change in attitude. Attitude requires a change in thoughts. That's why Paul understood it's not the skill of the speaker on the will of the hearer. It's the influence of the message. Again, what's happening here, they are listening to others other than Paul, and they are not hearing the truth. Um, he's afraid that they'll be seduced. I wrote an article, and I'm going to close with this. I'm going to read it. Um, and the article from Vase for Grace, which is 
a, a kind of a devotional commentary through Second Corinthians, it asks a question, what religious leader poses the greatest threat to Christianity? Then I'll read on through the article as we close. The answer will surprise you. And here it is in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4. I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. The greatest threat to Christianity in Paul's time was from Jesus. As strange as it might seem, the worship of Jesus caused Paul the greatest concern. He was afraid that misguided Christian leaders were proclaiming a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached. Paul was afraid that the Corinthians were being led astray, much like their predecessors were in the Garden of Eden. I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, the serpent misrepresented God's character and teachings in order to drive a wedge between God and man. Paul perceived that a repeat performance was unfolding in his day. The serpent attacked Eve on sacred grounds, not sensual ones. He didn't point out how wonderful the fruit would taste. He began by attacking God's character, intimating that God put the tree off limits for self-serving reasons, because he did not want Adam and Eve to know what he knew says, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The false teachers were using the same strategy to confuse the Corinthians. The difference was that they were directing their attack on God the Son rather than on God the Father. Greek is the original language of the New Testament. There are two Greek words that are translated by the same English word, another. One word means another of the same kind. The other Greek word for other means another of a different kind. The false teachers use these words in this way, another of the same kind of Jesus but another of a different kind of gospel and spirit. What do you mean? We can only speculate as to the exact nature of their deception. What is clear, though, is that their teaching was eroding the Corinthians' faith and caused them to be led astray from a sincere, pure devotion to Christ. In other words, a slight modification in their representation of Jesus caused a huge modification in the message they proclaimed and the spirit with which they proclaimed it. What ended up happening, they tweaked Jesus a little bit. But when they tweaked Jesus a little bit, it ended up having a monstrous impact on the message 
and the Spirit. That's what Paul is indicating. It's important for us to remember what Jesus said. It's also important for us to remember how he said it. In Jesus' day, harsh-spirited religious shepherds wearied their flocks under the heavy weight of burdensome religious obligations. Jesus said, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. In stark contrast, Jesus gently lifted loads from the backs of the weary and burdened. He issued this invitation on behalf of his father. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus' greatest critics were those who stubbornly held on to the notion that God still dealt with people forcefully. They could not accept that Jesus was God, no matter how many miracles he performed. Why? Because Jesus was gentle. And their understanding of God was that he was forceful. How can we tell whether the Jesus we are hearing about is the real Jesus or merely a counterfeit Jesus? Like Paul was afraid the Corinthians were hearing about way back in that time. If after hearing about Jesus, you regularly leave church with a heavier load on your back than when you walked in, the chances are that the Jesus being proclaimed is not the Jesus Paul talked about. On the other hand, if after hearing about Jesus, you regularly leave the church with a lighter load on your back than when you walked in, the chances are that the Jesus being proclaimed is the real Jesus. The real Jesus said this, and I close with this, I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. May pray for us. God, thanks for um, who you are, and Jesus, that your words are reflected and recorded so that we can understand and listen to them. It's not just the words, but it's the way you said them. You were gentle and humble in heart. The combination of the, the message you proclaimed and the manner in which you proclaimed it created a sense of relief, going from weary and burdened to finding rest. And this is what you intended. I'd ask that slowly, progressively, as our understanding of you becomes clearer, more accurate, that we would experience what you say we will experience a lighter load and an easier yoke. In Jesus' name, amen.